0: To this uh, edition of Pep Talk, the Persuasive Evangelism podcast. I'm Andy Bannister and I'm joined by my uh, co host, uh, Christy Baer. Christy, how are you doing down there in London today?
1: Oh, not only surviving, but thriving. Thank you, Andy. Not only surviving, (laughs) but thriving.
0: Oh, you should should write tweets or something like that. (laughs) Well, we got a great, uh, we got a great guest for you today. By the power of technology, not merely do you have my, myself in Scotland and Christy in London, but we're joined uh, all the way from the US of A uh, by Paul, uh, Paul Gould. Uh, Paul, welcome to Pep Talk. Thanks, guys. It's great to be with you. And uh, whereabouts in the USA are you uh, coming to us today from?
2: Yeah, we're coming from uh, just outside of Dallas, Fort Worth in Texas. Well, it's, uh, it's great it's
0: uh, to have you on the show, not envious about your your climate at all. <laughs> and uh, Paul is a Paul. You're a visiting uh, scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is a uh, quite a mouthful. Um, got a PhD, kind of written um, many many books and thought very deeply about many many things. Uh, but one of the things that you have a kind of passion for and have written uh, books on, and also done a piece on the Solas website for, is um, this whole idea of cultural apologetics. Mm-hmm. And to many people, that will be a phrase they they haven't come across before. Paul, in a nutshell, what is cultural apologetics, and why is it important, especially as we think
2: about evangelism in today's age? Good. Yeah, let me let me begin with why it's actually important, and then I'll tell you what it is. But um, so for about 16 years, my wife and I were campus ministers working on the college campus, and and I just realized that you know we're in this environment where as Christians, truth is on our side, but. But the gospel was regularly ridiculed, and and people just didn't think that Christianity was true or even reasonable. And so I began to ask this question: you know, how does the gospel get a fair hearing in our culture today, given all the sort of obstacles before us? And so, long story short, years later, basically began wrote this book called Cultural Ap- Apologetics to address that question. And then in there, this is how I define cultural apologetics: it's it's working to reestablish the Christian voice. The Christian conscience and the Christian imagination, so that the Gospel will be viewed as both true and satisfying, in other words, that Christianity is not only true to the way the world is, you know it's reasonable, but it's good and beautiful as well. it satisfies every longing of the human heart for happiness, for peace, for beauty, for for goodness, for justice, for love, and things like that. So that's a little summary, I guess, of what cultural apologetics is.
1: One of the things I really love about that, Paul, is um, you mentioned that not only are you engaged in cultural apologetics, but that you've been also involved in college campus ministries. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been involved in that for about, well, about 10 years, but formerly I was with UCCF for about eight. And I wonder what you think about this at the moment. Uh, on campuses, I was um, speaking at a couple of university um, mission weeks earlier on in February, and there seems to be this kind of move from going from talking about the credibility of the gospel, which is very much like a baby boomer question. Mm-hmm. You know, if you die today, how do you know that you'd be with God tomorrow, kind of thing, to actually thinking more about the desirability and tangibility of the gospel, like leading with that first. And that sounds like that's what you're doing with this cultural apologetics and establishing a voice, you know, the conscience and um, the Role of the imagination. How have you seen that um, at work at the moment in our uh, live situations?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good observation, Christy, actually, because I think for years, uh, I mean, really since the Enlightenment, the main objection that was pretty prominent was that Christianity is irrational. So you have, you know, these. Enlightenment thinkers like David Hume saying the biggest miracle is that anybody believes that the resurrection actually happened, you know, tongue in cheek mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. things like that. And then you have, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the new atheists that are writing, folks like Richard Dawkins and books that are t- with titles like The God Delusion and, you know, Breaking the Spell of Religion. This is Dan Dennett and so on. Or, or Religion is Not Great. This is Christopher Hitchens. And, and really, the objection is still that Christianity is irrational, but there is this new component you know but it's not only is it irrational but it's undesirable you know and that um so we regularly regularly hear things like the christian ethic for example is unloving or repressive or or uh you know archaic or things like that and so there's all these objections they've always been there but i think they're more prominent today uh not just to the truth of christianity or the reasonableness but just we don't want it you know and so i can remember um You know, there's this famous philosopher named Thomas Nagel, who wrote this book in 1997 called The Last Word. And, And I'm always struck with this, where he says, basically, he says, you know, I'm struck with the fact that all these very intelligent people are Christians. Um, And then he says this, you know, "I, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And there's this idea that it's not just the objections aren't just to the reasonableness, but sometimes we just don't want it. And so I think if we really want to have a full orbed apologetic, we've got to address not only the truth question, of course, we have to address that. But all these objections to the goodness and the beauty or the desirability. So, yeah, I think there is a big shift um, that is taking place and we need to address all of those worries.
0: Hmm. You know, as you um, unpack that, Paul, the thought that's occurred to me sometimes is that on the one hand, as Christians, it's very easy to look at the culture and sort of critique it and say that it's moved away from concepts of truth and yeah. and and so on and so forth. And we see that coming through in these new kind of questions that people are asking. But I also wonder, I wonder to what extent it's also because at times as Christians and our evangelism and our apologetics that we maybe have shared a sort of shallow version of the gospel. We've mm-hmm. forgotten about the the imagination. You know, I remember that you know that uh, that famous line of Blaise Pascal. You know, mm-hmm. preach the gospel in such a way that good people wish that it were true. And show that, that it is. Yeah. And uh, the back of my mind is, you know, one of my great uh, apologetic heroes is C.S. Lewis, because I think I think Lewis had this great ability to connect the reason, the reason and the imagination, and do those two things together. And I know you've talked about Lewis and his yeah. his sort of use of of the imagination. Can you sort of talk a little bit more about perhaps why the imagination and appealing to these, some of these other things, not putting truth aside, mm-hmm. but as well as talking about reason and truth, are so important, and more particularly, how might the ordinary person? begin thinking about doing that as they talk about Jesus with their friends?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, the thing, and and actually Lewis, I think, brings this out so well, is that what you have with Christianity is this really perfect blend of, to use Lewis's phrases, of reason and romance. You know, you have, of course, Christianity is reasonable, and any, any apologetic ought to defend the reasonableness of Christianity. But as Lewis put it, You know, we also long for romance, and for what what he meant by that wasn't this sort of base sentimentality, but this idea that the deepest longings of the heart for home will be satisfied. So, like, you mentioned Pascal, you know, there's this wonderful quote uh, in his Pensees where he basically says that deep within the human heart, there's this. He actually uses the phrase "there's this whiff of a trace of a memory of a time when man capital M, so all humans were truly happy." You know, that deep within the heart, we had this memory of of a time when the world was as it ought to be. And I think that in cultural apologetics, and, you know, we we kind of reawaken these deep longings of the human heart for justice, for a world made right. And, of course, the imagination is so critical today because, you know, we live in – sometimes people talk about how we live in a post-Christian nation and the idea there, whether or not we do or not, there's an interesting debate. But the idea is that uh, we at least live in a – Maybe a uh, biblically illiterate culture, and so when we throw out phrases like, you know, Jesus needs to save your soul. Well, first of all, what do you mean by Jesus? What do you mean by soul? And what do you mean by save? And so, the idea is that we need to re, um, re we need to help people imaginatively understand what these phrases mean, and, and that's why for Lewis he talked about imagination is the organ of meaning, right? That we have to help. In fresh ways, people understand the meaning of these terms that we use, so that the gospel will actually be understood and get a fair hearing. So people can understand what it is we're even talking about.
1: Because mm, one of the things that uh, the words that you use is reenchantment. <clears throat> yeah. How do we? How, what does that mean for us? How do we go about reenchanting um, towards reality?
2: Basically, if you would ask the question, he, so here's a great, here's a favorite phrase of mine. Uh, Leslie Newbegin, who um, perhaps you guys are familiar with. He was, um, oh, yes. yeah, I, I figured oh, yes. you are. So he, you know, he went away as a missionary. I love Leslie. Oh, good. Well, then I'm going to give you my favorite quote from from his book, Come Foolishness on. to the Greeks. But, but uh, you know, he goes away to India for 40 years or whatever, comes back to his sending country there in Great Britain, and realizes that in the time he was away, as he described it, that the nation had become post-Christian and that he needed to have a missionary encounter with uh, modern society, and so in the very first page of Foolishness to the Greeks, he basically asked this question, which I think is our crucial question, and that's the question: What would be involved in a genuine missionary encounter between the gospel and the whole way of thinking, perceiving, and living that we call modern Western culture? So, in that question, you know, he asked, he he he. There's this phrase: What is the dominant way of thinking, perceiving, and living? And I think that the dominant way of perceiving today is the word disenchantment. And what I mean by that is that, by and large, we no longer view the world in its proper light. So, for example, we use words like this. We say that the world is ordinary or everyday or mundane. But in reality, that's, you know, that's not what the world is like. The world is deeply mysterious, and it's, it's um, beautiful. And to use the proper word, as Lewis would say, it's holy, it's sacred, it's gift. And so the idea of re-enchanting our lives um, and re- you know, having, is perceiving the world in its proper light so that we would learn to enjoy all things as gift and then enjoy them in creaturely response. That's actually how Lewis would put it. That's the idea of re-enchanting, seeing and delighting in the world the way Jesus does and then inviting others to do the same.
0: Paul, I love, I love that idea of, in, of, of sort of enchantment and wonder and, and, and disenchantment as we were You know, talking before the recording, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that the three of us are chatting around is the fact that when you start thinking in those terms, the sort of signs of the fact this is an enchanted world, a world full of wonder and and something other than just that sort of uh, base material level comes through everywhere. That idea that, you know, although we may live in a a secular age, to quote Charles Taylor's Mm -hmm. uh, famous book. Um, there are these kind sort of ghosts and signs of, of of transcendence everywhere. One of the things I, I was been thinking about in the last few days, actually, and would love your kind of thoughts on perhaps sort of pulling on this thread of it. As we're recording right now, people may be listening to this in the future. But as we're recording right now, the whole coronavirus thing is, is everywhere. It's turning societies and economies and everything upside down. And it occurs to me, a friend said to me the other day, they said, isn't it interesting that although we live in a secular age that says, you know, human beings are nothing more than the sum of their parts, uh, you know, uh, sort of neo-Darwinianism, survival of the fittest and so on and so forth, we are... You know, literally countries are on the verge of crashing their economies because we're pouring billions of pounds into keeping the weakest alive Um, because we know there's something precious. We know that it's not Mm. acceptable to say, hey, why don't we just euthanize everybody over the age of 70 and just let the virus run its course? We instinctively know that's wrong even though the, the biggest sort of secular story we're living in can't explain why it's wrong. And I think there's an incredible opportunity right now, actually, uh, around the way that societies were responding, that are screaming and shouting if we listen uh, to that sort of a sign of transcendence that the mm-hmm. human life is much more than just the material. That was a sort of long sort of rambling kind of comment, but I'd, I'd love your sort of take on it. Cause I think there's a as a cultural apologetics opportunity right now in this moment.
2: That's right. Yeah. I mean, so think of it this way, you know, the intelligentsia have been telling us for, I don't know, a long time that there's nothing beyond this world, right? That it's just mundane. There's no supernatural reality. But what's so interesting is that our longings betray us, you know, and that we're, we're fascinated, I think, as a culture with, I mean, the extra mundane. And I was just struck, uh, I, I guess it was a couple of years ago, I don't know how it was in your country. But um, here in America, there's this like 15 minute Fascination with Pokemon Go a couple summers ago. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, you had it too. So everybody's walking around with their phones, you know, s- staring at this augmented reality. And it's so interesting. That's a kind of like, you know, we want there to be more, whether it's virtual realities, whether it's escaping into movies, or there's this obsession with the o- occult, and there's this obsession with, um, uh, I mean, just, you know, the paranormal. All of these things are really interesting because they betray. The world, the, the intelligentsia say there is nothing beyond this world, yet our longings, you know, long for something more. And so I think that moments like, you know, we're, we're speaking in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. Um, again, it just it reminds us to go back to Taylor that we're not buffered, right? You know, Taylor talks about how we want to be these buffered selves that insulate ourselves from all of the ravages of the world around us, Um but no, we're actually vulnerable, right? And, and I think I feel this and I see this. You know, it, it's amazing how quickly things crumble and how amazing how fragile we actually are. The truth is that we're always in the loving hands of God, but there, it's moments like this when those things surface. And so I think you're right, it's a real moment for us as Christians to love our neighbors, to point them to the hope that we have in Christ. Um, you know, and the truth that God, that, that, you know, that God holds, holds us in his loving hands and cares for us even in the midst of suffering. So yeah, real important moment. Um, but absolutely, uh, we're haunted, I think, by transcendence, this longing for more. And that's part of what we ought to do is just poke and point, um, and ask questions in these, in these moments, you know, uh, that help people sort of set them on a journey to see that they're ultimately longing for, you know, the only true transcendent reality, which is Jesus Christ.
1: Oh, Amen. One of the things that I loved about um, what you've said here and earlier is talking about reality in such a way that people see and delight in the world as Jesus does and inviting others to do the same. What do you think that might look like for us now connecting that um, that longing for transcendence with the person of Jesus Christ um, in our time right now of COVID-19?
2: Yeah, I think, um, initially, you know, the two, the two times and, and, um, the book of Acts, where Paul engages a culture different than himself, are found in Acts chapter 14, where Paul engages the God-fearing Greeks in Lystra, and then in Acts chapter 17, where Paul engages. The, the Greeks in Athens. And what's so interesting about both of those encounters, for example, go to think of the Acts chapter 14, where Paul says something really interesting there, um, where he basically, as he's engaging with these God-fearing Greeks, he says, look at all the good things that you have. You know, you have wine to drink, you have food, you have seasons, and so on. Um, you know, and then he, he basically challenges them to consider the giver of all good things. And so, one thing that we can be doing in a time like this is just pointing to all the things that we take for granted that we 're no longer taking for granted you know the food and and toilet paper and and uh, you know the the necessities that we have so that would be one thing, and then the other thing, in terms of the the fear um, and you know the genuine suffering that is taking place, you know to point to um, the fact that God is there too, and to really press into the, these these areas of fear and then to bring hope and to bring, um, you know, the fact that God does care, that God is with us. Uh, these are really critical times where I think, um, you know, the God the Christian God really does um, comfort and, you know, it matters that Christianity is actually true because we're not just um, as the secular worldview would say, the universe is indifferent to us. Well, no, actually the Christian perspective is quite different, that God cares about every hair of the, you know, on our heads and and the very things that we care about, God cares about. And so pointing to those truths, I think in these times is really helpful.
0: Mm. But one last Kind of question. Uh, I think as we as we sort of head towards the to, to wrapping things up in, in a few minutes time, you know, you mentioned Acts seventeen there, mm-hmm. and one of the things I, I love in Acts seventeen for those who, who know that passage, that's Paul. There is there in Athens, he sees the altar to the unknown gods, and he uses that as a as a bridging point. Uh, to present the gospel and and Jesus to the to the Athenians, and what's it always interested me in that passage. Not merely is he able to use this cultural bridging point, rather than critique them for their their mm-hmm. idolatry, he le- uses it as a connection. He also quotes their own poets, That's right. and I wonder is there a lesson there for Christians that, as well as knowing our scriptures and knowing the gospel story, is there a lesson there that we also need to be listening to the story of the culture, so that we can do as Paul did, that we can find the connecting points yeah. um, rather than just being aware of what we you know what goes on in the forwards of our churches, but not perhaps aware of what our friends out there in the world are are thinking about how can we use I guess culture uh to build bridges of the gospel a bit better
2: yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, um, you know, what Paul did, so to use N.T. Wright's language here, Paul's speech in Athens, he does three things. He, as N.T. Wright would put it, he he first affirms what he can affirm in Athenian culture. And and so for Paul, that was affirming the religious impulse behind all that idolatry and using that as a starting point to to build that bridge to, to Jesus and the gospel. And then secondly, though, uh, Paul outflanks their thinking, and he does that in a brilliant way. And then third, he confronts their rank idolatry. And so I think you know, you see him outflanking their thinking, and that's where he, in the midst of that, as he's building a bridge from this God that they they worship who is unknown, you know, and then, well, actually, this God who heals the plague and whom you worship is unknown is your creator and your sustainer and your ordainer. And then you get to verse 28, which is this great, and, you know, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, where Paul is quoting Epimenides, who's one of their poets, and actually Epimenides was, said this about Zeus. And so Paul's basically agreeing with it up to a point, but reinvesting it with new meaning, new fresh meaning. And, and he's basically tapping into this question that the Greeks have been asking since the beginning of Greek philosophy. You know, what is... What is change? What is uh, what is reality? And what is life? And he basically says, it's him whom you worship as unknown, who heals the plague, who is your creator and sustainer and ordainer. And then, of course, he quotes Erratus, the Stoic philosopher, you know, as he says, and some of your own poets have said we are all his offspring. And so I think it is actually a great illustration of how it'd be like me quoting I don't know, Drake or Taylor Swift or whoever. I don't want to date myself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say pro Jam. But, um, you know, <laughs> uh, it'd be like us quoting from the the aesthetic currency of our day to to make a point to build a bridge to Jesus and the gospel. And I think that, you know, we're people of the book as Christians, but we live in an age of image and we li- live in an age where we're driven by um, the aesthetic currency, the things that, that awaken our longings for beauty. And so we should use that, right? As, I, I love how St. August, Augustine, who is an ancient church father, wrote this book called The Confessions. And in there he says of Jesus, you are the beauty of all beautiful things and then the good of all good things. And I would just add the truth in which all true things point. And so everything, all that is good and true and beautiful is ours, right? We own it. And so our job is to point to that um, in in culture, even as we see it, and then connect it to the source which is christ and in doing that we set them on a journey which if faithfully followed ends in christ
1: thank you so much paul and uh, we've been so encouraged and i'm really just struck by what you said that jesus is the the most beautiful of all beautiful things uh, thank you for your time today thank you so much for listening to pep talk we'll be back again uh, shortly with our next guest